You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. We are uh, now almost halfway through this sermon series through the book of Hosea. We're trying to do a chapter a week, and so um, I know that the sermons have been a little bit longer than maybe you're used to. I think it's going to be another week like that uh, this week, frankly. Um, but I pray that by taking this slow walk through each chapter that the Lord is showing himself through that. And that's what we're asking him for. I want to open to this morning by kind of talking to you guys about um, uh, something that if you're a, a mom or a dad, you've probably done with your kids. Um, I, I've been doing this with my three boys their whole lives where as soon as they can think to do it, um, they'll sit on my lap and they'll take their little hand and they'll put it inside of my hand and they'll kind of size it up, kind of want to measure how their hand stacks up against mine. And then as they get older and they keep fitting their palm into my palm, they rejoice as they see that their hand is growing in size to the point that maybe someday here soon in the future, my hand will be as big as dad's hand. It's, I think, implied in that practice that's almost like intrinsic to my little boys is that they want to grow up into something that they find to be a good thing the strong hands of their father, the providing hands of their father, the capable or skilled hands of their father, however incapable and unskilled I am in comparison to a three-year-old, I'm doing all right. And so they stick their palm in there and they look to the strength of their father and they say, this is a good thing. It's something to be desired. To give you a kind of little peek into the window of flirtation in my home, I also am aware that my wife tells me that one of her favorite things physically about me is my hands. And I think a lot of women in this church can attest that a man's hands communicate something to them. And she'll say that for all of the attributes and qualities that I, that I love, there's something about uh, hands that have seen work hands that have seen labor, hands that are skilled, and that when she watches me laboring over something or like fixing the family car or whatever, that it reminds her of some truths about me as her husband, that I am a provider or that I, that I labor for her and for the kids and, and things like that. There's something about a man's hands, right, that like communicates some stuff about who he is to both the children, to the wife. Well, the reason I point out this minor illustration this morning is because we're going to see in this passage in Hosea how the steady and firm and sometimes heavy hand of the Lord is the exact same hand that cradles and comforts and restores and heals. That when he allows us to see the might of his hands, the strength of his hands, the hands and whose hollows he set the waters of the earth, like the hands that he saved the world through as they were pierced through by the nails, like these hands that he crafted man from the dust with and breathed life into his nostrils, these very powerful and capable hands which are swift to judge and to cut down the wicked and all of this, these are the same hands that bind up. And I want to open up this morning with a quote from a a 16th century English Puritan, Richard Sibbs, he wrote that God's children run home when the storm comes on. It's the heaven-born instinct of a gracious soul to seek shelter from all ills beneath the wings of Jehovah. That there's something in us that in the children, a a child's response, that when the storm comes in, we look to the wings of our God, to to the hands of our God to come under them for shelter, but we came to know the trustworthy of the strength of those wings through the ways that the, the myriad ways that he displayed it. And so we are going to see that the heavy hand of the discipline, the fatherly chastisement of God this morning are, is a demonstration, in fact, of his, of his mightiness to save. We open in chapter 6, verse 1 this morning with this statement from the prophet Hosea, come, let us return to the Lord is his call. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Chapter 6 opens up this morning with this like this plea, this prayer, this call, almost a song from Hosea that utilizing the, the collective us to say, 
come on, guys, like my hope is in this communal repentance, this communal restoration from the people of Israel, calling all of us that, that we are to go and turn our hearts once again to the Lord God. You guys have the backstory on this. Like they've been walking in wickedness and idolatry and turning to false idols and false gods and in and, 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 and their disobedience, the Lord's hand of oppression has been prophesied to be imminent. And so Hosea is calling out to them from, from this broken heart, come guys, let us return to the Lord. It is he who has torn us that he may heal us. When he says return to the Lord, he's using the Hebrew word return there is shuv, and it's, it signifies confession and repentance. He's calling on the people to both acknowledge their departure from God and to redirect their steps toward him and their hearts back to him. It's the essence of repentance, and that's his cry for the people that they'd all collectively return to the Lord. And his reason is this, for or because he, God, has torn us, that he may heal us. When he says that the Lord God has torn us, he's referring back to the metaphor from last week, from chapter 5, where the Lord compared himself to a lion. He said, I will be as, as a lion to Ephraim, and I will be as a young lion to Judah, that I will tear away and that no one will rescue from my hand. So he's just given that prophecy. Hosea has just spoken the the, the discipline of the Lord is about to come upon us, and so he calls out this, it's he who has torn us, yes, but it's that he may heal us. So while there's this divine discipline that is coming, it, there's this providence that the punishment is not for our destruction, if you remember to last week, but it is unto our healing, that the same God who tears is the God who heals. And there's that fatherly chastisement. And I think that uh, it makes me think about some of the, like, the way that I parent in my home. I would say that it's, it's a godly form of discipline where uh, my wife will marvel. She'll say that there's something, in, there's something demonstrated in strength when my children maybe are, are erring or they're, or they're requiring discipline, and I'll give them a command, and they want to resist or disobey. And when, there's, when you don't need to raise your voice, when you don't need to threaten, when you don't need to whatever— and something I say, good or bad, is I'll say to my children sometimes, I have spoken. <laughs> I'll say it, and they'll resist, and stone-faced, I'll just say, I've spoken. And that's all it takes, and then they will go and obey. But there is a strength in the steadiness. There's something that, that they look at, and they say, I, I'm, I'm trying to come up against an immovable object here. And so it causes them to recognize the strength of their father in the command that he's given. Well, Hosea has come to see the strength of his father in the commands that he's given in the judgment and the discipline and the punishment that he has issued. But he's, he's seen it against the backdrop of his character that my father is for us and that it's unto my restoration. And so he's saying, come, let us return to the one who's broken down in order that he can bind up. And so he's appealing to the people to see the fullness of the character of God. Just as he says, he has torn us that he may heal us. He says he struck us down, that he'll bind us up. He's, he's carrying on this same picture that while he's the one who brings us low, he, he does it in order to bind us up as an act of healing. And so my question for us is, is where have we as individuals or as a community, have we come to, to recognize our straying from the Lord where the call is for us to, to see our departure from him and where we ought to receive that call to repent and to return to the one whose hand of discipline is brought against us in order to bring us into our healing. And if you've experienced that hand of discipline, the fatherly discipline in your life where he has caused you to taste that bitter water like we've talked about, where like you've, in your idolatry, the Lord in his goodness has caused you to see and turned you over in some ways to that, that you might turn from it and turn back to him? Where has his hand of discipline been effective to call you back unto himself? And where can you glory and thank the Lord for his hand of discipline in your life to bring you unto repentance and healing and restoration? Or where are you in that process with your idolatry right now? These are all questions that we need to ask. We're only going to ask it, I think, if we are thinking about it in light of the character of God, chiefly as it is revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I can't confess my sin. You remember my illustration from last week with Bo, where I, where my, my son Bo, where I had asked him, what does it mean when we say, Father, I have sinned? He said, well, if he's my father, then I can tell him the whole thing. But if he's the judge, who's, and I'm just waiting for the punishment on a criminal, then I've got to try to position this a certain way and, and add heap on my righteousness here. Bo is saying, if he's my father... Well, then I can give him the fullness of a confession because I can trust in his character and his love for me to bind up even what I have broken. And so the gospel encourages us to look deeply at a call to repent and to say, can I? To ask that question, can I repent? Is there any goodness to be found in repentance? Is acknowledging my sin to the Lord and confessing that out loud, does that have, and is that, can that bring any goodness to my life? Well, the, the testimony of the Father's love exemplified through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son, Jesus, on your behalf says, yes, yes, absolutely, bring the fullness of your sin before him and turn from it. In fact, it's his very hand in your life that's permitting you and calling you to do that. So Isaiah moves on in, in verse 2 to, he, he makes a claim after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. So when he says after two days, he will revive us, let's look at that closely. It's this, it's this phrase that's continuing that theme of healing and restoration from verse 1, but it's signifying that there's a period of judgment and suffering and discipline that is going to come for Israel, and that's kind of already been established, but he says, yeah, like that part is true. There will be the two days, but after two days, on the third day, he will raise us up. He's expressing a hope that the Lord is not just going to rejuvenate them or to restore them to their former position, which was of no use to them at all, but that in raising them up by passing them through his hand of discipline, they're going to be resurrected to something yet greater than that position they were in before the Lord brought them low. And this is, of course, our state that we had some sense of life in our sin, otherwise we wouldn't sin, would we? Like, we're doing it because of what sin offers us. There's a whole lot that's enticing about sin. And Hosea, and I, when we hold it up against the backdrop of 2 Kings, we know what's going on in 8th century B.C. Like, like the nation of, of Israel in the northern kingdom has seen their borders established back to the borders that God had given in the beginning after they'd seen them shrink. They'd seen political prosperity. They'd seen economic prosperity. Things were going well for them. As the deeper they went into their sin, the Lord rebukes them in chapter 2 and says, it was I who was pouring out blessing upon them, and they credited my love to these pagan gods, and now they have fallen headlong into their sin. And so what shall I do? I will bring my hand of discipline upon them in order that they might see that it was my loving care all along. So the two days are coming, but the two days are coming unto the third day where he will raise us up that we may what? Live live before him true life true life this is god's ultimate goal in the restoration process he doesn't break us for fun he breaks the hands that are clinging to idols in order that he can bind them up empty and fill them up with himself that we might have true life and life abundantly in him it's not just about your physical life it's about your spiritual eternal life full and abundant in Christ alone. Now, I was thinking about this third day theme in the Old Testament because we are obviously going to think about the third day at one level, and I'll talk about that, but they couldn't have thought about the third day the way that we would, given that they didn't see the fullness of the third day theme like Jesus rising from the grave. Well, what, how would they have understood it? I asked this question, how did they think about it? And there were several things that stood out to me. So in the Old Testament, over and over again, that third day theme is significant. To the original audience, they would have seen it as imminent and divine action that was coming from God, intervention that was coming from God. In Genesis 22, in verse 4, it's on the third day that Abraham saw the place that God had told him to go to sacrifice his son Isaac, which means that the anguish that he was feeling from God's command for him to go and sacrifice his only beloved son was alleviated on the third day when God provided that sacrificial ram as a substitute. In Exodus chapter 19, it was the Israelites who were told to consecrate themselves for two days because on the third day, God himself was going to be descending on Mount Sinai to commune with them. And then, of course, there's Jonah 
chapter 1, where Jonah spends three days in the belly of the great fish before the Lord brings him back to life and spits him out on dry land. And this is, of course, what Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 12 when he says that this was actually allegory for the three days that I'm going to spend in the belly of the earth bringing about resurrection for my people. And so I was thinking about Jonah because I told you guys at the beginning of the sermon series that Jonah was a contemporary of Hosea, that the two of them were both prophets in the northern kingdom under King Jeroboam II. And I wondered, did Hosea like know about Jonah when he starts talking about third day? So I look it up and it's like, well, it would seem so because the events that took place in Jonah's life, as best as we can tell it, happened roughly 15 to 30 years before this prophecy from Hosea. So I'm pretty sure that he'd be talking about it. And I'm pretty sure that when Hosea says, hey, I know that after two days that we're going to be down, on the third day, he's going to bring us back to life. What he's looking, he was likely doing is looking into what the Lord did in Jonah's life and said, that God, if that God can do it for Jonah, he can do it for all of us. And so he's calling on a collective repentance to say, when the Lord brought Jonah to repentance, Jonah saw new life, and if, and if we repent, then we will see new life. And when I was thinking about that a little bit further, it also caused me to lament a little bit the difference in those two stories. This isn't a sermon series through Jonah, and so I don't want to make too, much assumptions about, too many assumptions about what you may know about that story, but God calls Jonah to leave the northern kingdom and to go and preach a message of repentance to a foreign nation, Assyria, the very nation that's going to conquer the northern kingdom. It's the nation that God's going to use to carry out his judgments against the northern kingdom in short order here. And so Jonah goes with a resistant heart because God tells him to go and prophesy to them. He says, but you're merciful and have steadfast love. I'm afraid that if I go and preach to them that they're going to repent. And I don't want them to repent because I want you to bring your judgment to rain down on them. And God makes him go and the nation of Assyria, a wicked pagan nation, has widespread repentance. They fall on their face and they call on the living God to, to forgive them for his mercy. And he shows them mercy and he relents of the disaster that he had told the jo Jonah to go and prophesy to them. And so Assyria is marked by widespread repentance while the nation of, of Israel is marked by widespread uh, spiritual adultery and what God calls spiritual whoredom, where they're chasing after the pagan gods, the pagan nation is calling on the one true God for mercy. And in that inversion, the Lord shows favor to the pagan nation, and he uses that nation to bring judgment upon the northern kingdom. Kind of wild. So our question is, have we experienced restoration after a long season of spiritual dryness or a hand of discipline on our life? Can you, have you learned to notice how the God used a season of spiritual dryness or a season of discipline upon you where he caused all your lesser hopes to dry up on you, where you looked out and you were like, I, everything was so great. I had all the things that I thought I needed, and the Lord's taking from you, and he's taking from you, and he's taking from you so, to the point that you call out, I'm parched. I'm, I'm thirsty. I've got nothing to lean on here anymore, God, but you. I, and now I call on you. And then his hand of provision and restoration and healing comes for you. Because if he could do it for Assyria, who was headlong in spiritual idolatry, they were not even the, the set-apart people of God. And if he can use Assyria to then bring his set-apart people unto repentance, that he can restore them as well, Surely he can do it for you. Surely if you have been caused to taste dryness in your mouth when you try to drink of your idolatry, the Lord can use that to bring you unto new life. I also want to point out that this transformation, this revival, and this raising, it happens after two days. And that's symbolic, at least to me, of the waiting that we sometimes have to do. Like, have you ever accused God of working too slowly? Have you ever felt like his hand of grace and mercy and restoration were slow in your life? Have you ever felt like the two-day period was a long two-day period? Are you in the two-day period now? Has the Lord God caused you to feel parched, to find that 
the works of your hands are not producing the yield that you expected of them, that you asked of them. This has so many applications, but have you asked other gods? And I really believe that almost all other gods are really just you. Have you asked yourself to be for you what only God can be for you, and the Lord has caused you to see that all the lesser gods are, in fact, lesser gods, worthless gods? And does that long two-day period feel unbearably long? Well, this hope then is for you that on the third day, there's new life. There's resurrection. There is a dawn coming, and it's coming for you. Now, we see it in in Jesus, and and I'm going to get there in, in a moment, but I want you to know that even for the people who have been rescued for Jesus once and for all, for, from, by Jesus once and for all, for all time, where we will come into the true land flowing with milk and honey and the new heaven and the new earth, and, we, and we'll see the fullness of restoration, he's still dealing with you as a father on this side of eternity, where as the, sin, as the, as the sins of the flesh cling tightly, you'll still experience the hand of discipline by your father in order that you might walk closely with him on this way to the new heavens and the new earth where sin will be no more. Until that day, he loves you too much just to let sin have its way. So those seasons of dryness, even for you, child of God, are for you. Do you believe it? Can you see that? It says in verse 3, so let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Is that not beautiful? He says, let's press on to know the Lord. He's calling for this continued and urgent pursuit of the knowledge of God by the people of God. This verb know in Hebrew, it's yada. It's that deep meaning that we've talked about before. It's like not just like to know a head knowledge, but it's to know something personally, to know it relationally, to know it experientially. It's this call for us to press on to have intimate relational knowledge of our God that prompts faithfulness and obedience because we know his character because we've tasted and seen for ourselves that he is good. Now, the reason why he says we ought to press on to know this God is because his going out is as sure as the dawn. The metaphor of going out like the dawn, right? It's like the the dawn breaking. It's a sign of the new day. And so God is going. It's as sure as the dawn that God is going to bring a new day. He is inevitably going to appear, and with it, he is going to heal the people. This is the prophecy that Hosea is going, that dawn is, dawn is reliable, predictable, and powerful in its ability to dispel the darkness. And it's coming, Hosea says. It's as sure as the dawn. It will come. God's promises are reliable. His presence is undeniable, and his restoration is powerful, friends. Like the dawn, it will dispel the darkness. It is imminent. And he says he's going to come to us as the showers, as spring rains that water the earth. So if you are parched, if you are thirsty, I was hanging out with my friend Michael yesterday, and we were talking about trying to find the words to articulate the things that we are are feeling. And and, and one of the things that we were talking about, we recognize that sometimes we don't even have the words to describe something like thirst. Like, how does that make, we're talking about like, like when you're experiencing like, a, like the oppression of your sin, or like I, I'm, I'm going and I'm drinking from these filthy cisterns, that language that we use all the time, that, that idolatry is essentially drinking deeply things that hurt us so that we don't leave feeling any more refreshed than we did before, and yet we just keep drinking and drinking, and we just feel more and more thirsty and more and more sick, and you try to help the person identify, how, how do you feel? and all of this, and they use every word but thirsty. I feel thirsty, and that's the thing that is driving me to my idol, because if we can't use that language where we're holding out the core thing to the Lord, and we're saying to him, my God, I hold out to you my thirst. Well, when you do that, then when he shows you the fountain of living water, you're you're just going to run to it, right? But if you don't even know that you're doing this because you're thirsty, then you don't even know what to talk to your God about. Now, frankly, God's not waiting on you to figure that out before he will minister good things to you. But I would challenge you to consider, do you understand what it is that you are finding so appealing about your idols? 
that you can hold them out to God and at least accuse him accurately. Because you are accusing him when you chase after other idols. But to accuse him accurately is to say, God, I have this need and I don't believe you can or will supply it. I have this desire and I don't trust you to meet it. And then you have to also hold out to him the challenges that you're making to him, which is that, and I don't believe that this desire was given to me by you. See, the majority of the desires that drive you to sin are actually good desires. They're desires that God put within you in order that he could meet them himself. But we take desires that God put within us and we separate them from the God who put them within us and then we seek their fulfillment in something other than God. But when we understand the desires of our inner heart to be put there by God, to be met by God, we will cling to him and him alone like the spring rains that water the earth. And that's a beautiful picture. It's a, it's a picture of, of, of a dry desert land receiving its seasonal rain and then springing forth new life. And this is ultimately the groaning of all of our hearts and our, and our idolatry is that the dry, broken, uh, sinful flesh would receive its new life, and it's found in Christ alone. Now, when he talks about um, the, the uh, goodness of God coming to us as sure as the dawn, I was uh, thinking about a time that I, I, my very first real job, like maybe not my first real job, my first job that I felt proud of working at. Um, I was a switchboard operator for a, a small community hospital, and that just means that when you called the main number to the hospital, you got me, and then I would transfer you wherever you were trying to go. And I worked that, that, uh, uh, that job as an overnight switchboard operator, and so the phone would ring like 10 times a night maybe. And I was a one-man job and on the overnight shift, so I'd be sitting in a small room by myself with a phone, reading a book, waiting for the phone to ring, and it may or may not do that. Really not a very important job. But there was one aspect of the job which was, which was that I was the command center for emergency codes. And so if somebody was coding out in a room or if there was a gunshot wound en route to the emergency room or whatever, they'd get me and then they would announce the code and then I would dispatch the response team, kind of like a 911 operator. And so whether you're paging like a stroke response team or you're announcing over the PA that somebody's having a heart attack in a patient room or whatever, that was the important aspect of my job. But when you have a responsibility like that, it was an important job, although I didn't do much. When you have a responsibility like that, on what basis can you sit there and read a book? On what basis can you sit there and play a little computer game while you're waiting for the phone to ring when you know that if it rings, it's because something terrible is happening? Well, it's the same role as, as a watchman, in essence. It makes me think of that psalm where the psalmist says that I wait for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. And what he's talking about is the role of a watchman is just to stand on the wall, just to stand on the watchtower and to watch for the dawn. And if I see anything but the dawn, and the dawn is sure, the dawn is coming, but if I see anything but the dawn, I blow the trumpet. And when I blow the trumpet, behind me is a whole response team to that trumpet that's going to go and meet what's on the other side of this wall. Well, I felt that way as this switchboard operator. I can just sit here and read a book because if I get the call, if I see anything but the dawn, I just dispatched the very capable response team and I know that they are capable to go and meet this need. Well, the surety that the Lord will come and that we can depend on him with the sureness of the dawn and this dawn will dispel the darkness is the impetus for us to then call on that God with the surety that he has the ability to drive out whatever dangers are presented in the darkness. And so that certainty that the light is coming, that the third day is coming, is the confidence that causes you to sit on the watchtower. And when you see something, or, or really when the Lord shows you something, you turn it over to him, and you trust him that he is the mighty hand that, that brings the discipline, that brings the judgment, that eradicates sin, and that brings restoration and new life. 6-4, God is responding. So this, that was Hosea's prayer. Now Hosea, er, and now God is speaking, and he says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love's like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away. This is devastating. When God says, what shall I do with you? What shall I do with you? It's this impassioned lament. It's a rhetorical question, and God's directing it at his people, and the focus is his sorrow over their persistent sin. But then he describes that persistent sin like love, 
that is like a morning cloud, like a dew that goes early away. So I just said to you that the love of God is like the dawn, and then God says, yeah, but your love and faithfulness is like a dew that vanishes at the sight of the dawn, that when the light shines on the valley, the dew evaporates as quickly as it appears, that your love is not like my love. It's a fleeting love, and your faithfulness is painted with this, with this metaphor of, of a mist that vanishes at the slightest warming of the ground. The people's love is disappearing as quickly as it appears, and Hosea is contrasting it, that their ephemeral love to the permanent, steady, and everlasting love of, and faithfulness of God. And so when we ask the question about our own love, like how does this stack up to the love of Israel, of Ephraim, and of Judah? Is my love for God steadfast? Is it reliable? Is it, or is it more like the morning cloud and the dew that vanishes in a moment and leaves no trace? And it challenges me to, to, to look at my commitment and my faithfulness to God. And you're challenged to do the same. What are you going to find? Because I, I can't jump to the conclusion without holding out to you the call that the prophet says, which is you are to do it. You are to size that up. You are to inspect. But what you will find, I promise you, is that the quality of your love and your faithfulness is just like the quality of the love and faithfulness of the old people of God, of, of, of the nation of Israel. It's not stable. It's not steady. It's not consistent. It's not sure. It's all over the place. Well, what do I do with that? And I do with it as I look to the persistent unfaithfulness of Israel, and I see in it my persistent unfaithfulness, and then I look to the hope that Israel had in their unfaithfulness as the hope that I have in my unfaithfulness. And that hope that they had was the steady, constant, paternal, fatherly, relational love of God. His love is not like your love. His love is not fickle. He does not hold it back. It is not inconsistent. He does not measure it out. And he does not share it with another. It is for his and his only. And so if you are his, his love is sure. And it shows us the need, the need of a better covenant. Because in the old covenants, there, there, were, there was a lot of if-then language. If you do this, then I will do that. If you do this, then I will do that. And all of those covenants ultimately were broken over and over again, always by the human party. We needed a better covenant, one where all of the terms of the covenant were fulfilled on God's side. And that's the nature of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, our true Israel, who lived the perfect life of obedience that we were meant to live, who died the death that we deserve to die, and who took up new life and united his people with him in that new life by the free gift of faith given by God, so that all the requisite work for you to be brought into the newness of life was done by God alone. That's the beauty of the gospel, that all that, all that renewal that we're desperate for is found without any doing on our part. All the doing is on his part. And all the doing on our part is a mere response of the, of the God who saved us, taking up residence in us and showing us how to walk in the new life that he has made true for us. Does this make sense? Then we get to verse 5, and God starts talking about that hand of discipline. He says, in light of the fact that, that my love pours out on them, surely, and when I shine my light, their love and faithfulness evaporates. In light of that, he says, therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. When he says he's hewn them by the prophets, you've got to know that the word hew, it means like to chop with repeated blows, like you might do with like an axe on a piece of wood. It's this image of like reforming discipline, like he's like carving the people. He's cutting away from the people. It's a declaration of discipline. He says, I've slain them by the words of my mouth. So the, the instrument that God is using to hew and to slay the people are the words of the prophets. So the function that Hosea and the other 
prophets that God had given in this time were to go and buffet the people with, with presenting to them their sin and the impending discipline for their sin. It was, it was one of the functions of the prophet. But it doesn't only cut them to expose their sin, it also brings about death. He says that the power of his word, it, it will slay them. It will slay the people. And now we really need that third day stuff to be true. Because now resurrection is absolutely necessary because God is saying that his word is going to slay me. It's going to slay me. And this is the promise for the people of God is that when the old self is put to death by the hand of God, it is put to death for the purpose of bringing to new life the new creation that you have in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, by judgment goes forth as the light, was the next part there. So God's judgment, as communicated through Hosea, it's as undeniable as the light that we just mentioned before. It's this pervasive and illuminating light, and it, and it reveals all that it touches. It shows the truth, and it leaves no place for darkness to hide. In the context of the passage, we're seeing that the light is a metaphor that's serving for the symbol of both God's sure deliverance and his inescapable judgment. That in what it reveals for his people is, is it calls his family into the assurance of their resurrection, but it calls the rest into the assurance of their judgment that his word goes out like the light and it will illuminate all and none will hide before the face of the Lord when his word goes out and it evokes in us a response. We must respond to the dual nature of the word of God. Because as much as it brings healing and restoration and direction and promise, it is also an instrument of judgment and exposes sin and unrighteousness. And so if you stand in here this morning separated from the Lord and you have not tasted the healing and restoration of his good word that has gone out and right now it has merely pierced you and you feel the, ha the weighty hand of judgment upon you, I tell you the escape from the hand of the Lord is the hand of the Lord. You must call upon him. You must repent and confess to him and receive all of the goodness that flows from the might of that God. And you don't barter with him. You don't, you don't appeal to him. You simply fall before him and you say, if I'm going to have what you're saying I need, I, you're the only one I can get it from. And the Lord responds to that prayer. In fact, that prayer is a prayer he puts within you. And maybe today is your day. If it is, I'd love to talk to you more. If you are a Christian, are there areas in your life where you're being hewn in and slain by the sharpness of God's word? And have you learned to delight in that with, with the way that the Lord puts to death all of those things which are worthless on your way into eternity? He's dealing with you lovingly like a loving father. So while God's word, when it is wielded for discipline, can bring discomfort by revealing and breaking the patterns of sin in your life, we must come to see that it is for the purpose of drawing us back to him that we might taste and see the goodness of the new life and the restoration that he is doing within us by the power of the gospel. Verse 6, God starts to talk to us about the, the, what he values in his relationship with his people. He says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And in this way, he's pointing out to, uh, to, to the Israelite people and for us to consider as well that the rituals of religion aren't what he's looking for. Like, why do we do what we do? Because he's peered inwardly, and he wants us to have that deep relational knowledge of God and for, to experience that deep, steadfast love, that word hesed that you guys were trained on over the, over the summer. It has connotations of mercy and kindness and faithfulness and steadfastness in, in the love that you have for God. He wants hesed, not burnt offerings. And any rituals that we perform separate from this deep, relational knowledge and love of the Lord is just an empty ritual in the sight of God. And for some of us, that's what our church attendance is. That's what GC attendance is. That we take communion with an empty mind. We don't, like, this is, it's not really worship at all. 
But what the Lord wants in each of the ceremonies and the rituals that he gifts to us is for them to be, uh, in some ways, a tangible expression of something that's gone on inwardly with you so that when you take communion, you're experiencing an embodiment of the goodness of that which you've received spiritually. And the same with baptism, the same with calling out these songs of worship, the same with opening the the word of the Lord and, and expecting to meet him there or gathering with the saints on, on Sunday or on other days throughout the week and, and, and sharpening one another and the hope and the trust that, the, that your God lives within the person sitting across this table from you and you can encounter and know him and experience him there. This is not mere ritual or religion. Christianity is distinct from all the religions of the world and that it's not about what you do in order to climb to God. It's what he's done for you and now in freedom we get to just participate in the new life which he has gifted to us. Is that how we engage our life in the church? Or is it merely a stack of rituals? And you've got to assess that. It's so easy to become a Pharisee. It's so easy to just be like, this is, it's time to do the thing because this is when we do the thing. And to completely detach it from your love for God. Far be it from us to be a church that just does the thing because it's time to do the thing. Let everything we do be done from authentic love and worship for our Lord. Verse 7 God says, it's like Adam that they've transgressed the covenant. They dealt faithlessly with me. When he says Adam, he's talking about original Adam. He's going all the way back to the Garden of Eden here. He says that, that the one who broke that first covenant with, with me, that their, dealing, their dealings with me are just like that. They've transgressed just like Adam. And so he's tying the, the behavior of Israel and, and also the behavior of all the world to an original condition, to the fallen condition, to the intrinsic sinful state of man, the innate original sin. And God is grieving and lamenting that over the face of the land, what he sees is a continuation of that which was planted in Eden, that, that original transgression which has been pervasive for all men. And I'm trying to say to you that you can't escape this that the starting condition is established before your birth, that all of humanity has been infected by this problem of sin, and so you don't work your way out of it. It's, it's part and parcel of being a broken human. We all come into the world needing this restoration. And he says that they've dealt faithlessly with me, which means he's not just looking at the fallen condition in Adam, but he's looking at what it produces, that your, that your outward behaviors of sin are merely telling the truth about what is true within you. And God is seeing both. He's the all-seeing God who knows the wickedness of your condition and the wickedness of your deeds. And when he says, there they dealt faithlessly with me, he's talking about Eden. You can't, he can't talk about Adam. They're transgressing like Adam. And then say, there, well, where, where? Where did they deal faithlessly? His heart and his mind are all the way back there at the very beginning. That this has, this has permeated all of humanity. He's underscoring the tragic reality of Israel's faithlessness in their relationship as a perfect reflection of the faithlessness of our original father, Adam. And so as you think about yourself and you're like, are there areas in my life where I'm acting faithlessly like Adam did or I'm acting faithlessly like Israel did? And again, the answer is yes, you are. You are violating in so many ways the, the, the covenant relationship that God has extended to you. What is your hope? Your hope is in a covenant that is not so easily broken. It's in the Christ who brought the new covenant into being where sin no longer separates believers from God because Christ completely fulfilled the requirements of the covenant on our behalf for his people. So we make war with our sin, not in order to become. We make war with our sin because we have become by the works of Christ alone. Verse 8, God points out an area called Gilead. He calls them a city of evildoers tracked with blood. Gilead's a region east of the Jordan River, and it was renowned for fertile land and balm. Here he calls it a city filled with evildoers and tracked with blood. And this violent image, I think, gives us a sense that God has looked out and he's seen a whole area, a whole city, a whole people marked by the same wickedness, violence, blood, injustice, possibly referencing cultic rituals with bloodshed. And just as a a side point, so I can speed this up a little bit, I want you to know, like, God doesn't just see your individual sin. 
what God is showing us in calling out the land of Gilead is that he also holds us accountable for our corporate sin, for our collective sin. And in that way, we want, to, we want to acknowledge that the Lord peers into the life of the church and that he will hold, like we see in Revelation, when he goes church by church, and he says, this I acknowledge and this I hold against you, that he will look into the life of mercy's door and say, of that land of Gilead or that, that land of mercy's door, there was this collective sin where we collectively made peace with this idol or with that idol, and it grieves his heart, and he wants to see us collectively doing war with one another not against one another, with one another, against our idolatry. In verse 9, he says, As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together, and they murder on the way to Shechem and commit villainy. When he says he lies in wait, we're talking about like premeditated murder, like, and he's using premeditated robbers and murderers as allegory for the priests, like the ones who, he, who are meant to be appointed to be advocates for the people to oversee their spiritual care and all that God commanded. He's calling the priests robbers who lie in wait, banding together, not just like one or two, but like they are like conspiring against the Lord. And it's, like, it's a chilling portrait. And then he says it's on the way to Shechem. And what I know about Shechem is that it's one of the six... Levite cities that were declared by God to be cities of refuge, and cities of refuge in the Old Testament is where you were supposed to go if you committed manslaughter unintentionally, if you unintentionally killed somebody, you're supposed to be able to run to a, to a city of refuge, and Shechem's one of them, and in that place you would have protection until you could receive a fair trial. Well, what God is saying is that in Shechem, in a city of refuge, a place that was meant to be a safe haven, a, a, a place where you could find rest and respite while you awaited f- to be treated fairly, to protect you from vengeance from the, from the deceased family in this scenario, that the priests themselves who are given to oversee that goodness and justice and mercy over these, these safe havens are the ones lying in the bushes killing people on the way to the city of refuge that those who would make their way to Shechem were being devoured by the priests themselves. He says that my people have no safe haven because their pri- the priests that I have given have turned from them and turned on them. And so this obviously holds out for us like the severity of the wickedness of Israel at the time, but the application for us is that, is that the church leaders, that the spiritual leaders are not any more immune to wickedness that we need to hold, you need to hold me and the other elders and, and deacons and GC leaders and one another, everybody is under the fullness of the weight of the goodness of the word of God. That the title alone and the ritual alone is, a, is worthlessness if it is not done in worship and in an acknowledging of the fullness of the word of God. He says they're not functioning the way that I gave them to function. They're like murderers who call themselves priests. It's a problem. It's a problem. But more than an invitation for you guys to pray for spiritual leaders, we need to see that we are going to need something better than an earthly human priest. If the priests were capable of this, where will we find our great and promised and perfect priest? And the answer again to this is the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns eternally at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you as the perfect priest. So where your human leaders fail, he never does. Verse 10, the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel's defiled. The horrible thing, the whoredom that he's talking about is the spiritual adultery, the worshiping of pagan idols. But it results in a declaration by God that they are defiled. This word defiled, it means unclean, means unfit to be in his presence. What a hor- horrible and horrifying place to find yourself declared defiled by God when you need to stand before him pure if you're to escape his wrath and judgment. And so we start thinking about, well, gosh, am I vigilant? Am I prayerful about avoiding all forms of idolatry in my life? Do, can, I do, can I keep myself undefiled? And again, in all of that labor, however victorious you may feel that you are, you find that you are unable to present yourself spotless before your God who requires perfection. What do you do in your uncleanliness? What do you do when you find that you mirror the adulterous spirit of Israel? Defiled, unfaithful, and fallen. 
The gospel message is that Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection, has redeemed and purified and restored you so that when you stand before God, you stand before him as one cleansed. He will, you will not hear unclean pass through the lips of God when he looks at you because you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. If none can stand undefiled before God in their own merit, then we must each cling to the merits of Christ alone, our spotless Lamb, who will wash us white as snow. So we land here in verse 11. It says, You also, O Judah, for you a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. You guys know that Hosea is dealing mostly with the northern kingdom, but in the last chapter, now in this one, he's lumping in Judah. Both the north and the south kingdom, though divided, are regarded by God still as, the peop- as his chosen people, and his harvest is for both of them. But the term for harvest in this type of literature, it's got a connotation of impending judgment always when you're talking about prophecy. So what God is saying is that Judah, like Israel, is going to, so to speak, reap what they sow, that a harvest is coming for them too, that his judgment is going to pour out on them both, and we're going to see that come to transpire historically. They're going to face the consequences for their sin. His discipline is coming, but he said, but when is it coming? Well, this is how he lands it. When I restore the fortunes of my people. So we end where we began, that the Lord in saying in the last chapter, but I will discipline all of them. And him here saying, Judah, my discipline's coming for you too. My harvest against sin is coming for you too. Well, when is it coming? Well, when I restore the fortunes of my people. Why does he discipline? Why does he break down one in order to bind up? Why does he wound in order that he might heal? Why does he tear away in order that he could piece back together? Why does he pry your fingers open and take from you that he can replace what you were clinging so tightly to with himself, with himself? And this is the message of the gospel, that the ultimate act of restoration that God wants for us is found in Christ. He's the one who bore the judgment that we deserved. He took the harvest of our sin on the cross and brought our restoration and everlasting life for all who believe in him. So take heart, church. Let me read this again to you. God's children run home when the storm comes on. It's the heaven-born instinct of a gracious soul to seek shelter from all ills beneath the wings of Jehovah. If he has shown the might of his hand to you, whether by his discipline or by pouring out his favor upon you, in both cases, he's shown himself to be capable of sheltering you from the storm. So come to him. Come to him now. Come to him with me. This is a time for us to respond in prayer, to come under the wings of our Father and to call on him in light of all that his heavy hand has brought to mind for us this morning and know that he will bring you into freedom and restoration and new life because he's already done it in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.